Amen. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go with me tonight to Philippians chapter 1. I want to speak to you for a few moments on the subject, a steadfast church. The year was 1942. New Year's celebrations all over the world were subdued at best. War raged in Europe. And on December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and plunged the United States into the Second World War. America's pastors took to their pulpits to prepare their people for the coming conflict. Two of the country's most influential pastors resided in our metroplex. George Truitt pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas, one of the world's largest churches. J. Frank Norris led the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, the world's largest church. For his part, Norris saw the conflict coming years ahead of time and warned anyone who would listen about the rise of socialism and the aggression of Germany. In February 1942, Norris preached a sermon from Genesis 22 on Abraham's faith on Mount Moriah. He voiced the dread of the world's parents as they sent their sons into war. He said, and I quote, millions of men and women, fathers and mothers, today are walking up Mount Moriah with their sons. And they are asking as they say farewell to their boys in the greatest crisis in American history and of human history, will I ever see my son again? You can imagine the emotional temperature in the churches of the day. Norris pleaded with his people to face the coming contact, uh, conflict with faith and confidence in God. He said God was still sovereign and Jesus was still coming. He said, and I quote, there is coming a day when war shall be no more, when dictators will sweep around the world no more, when no more will we hear the crash of heavy artillery or sinking ships, when we hear no more the screams of helpless boys as they go down into the cold, cruel waters of war. Thanks be to God, he is coming again. He closed his sermon by counseling his people to face the coming crisis head on with confidence in Christ. He urged them to do three things. First, to give themselves completely to Christ. Second, to give the best they had to the one who had given all for them. Third, to present to him all that was his. In other words, the only way they were going to make it through the coming trials was to draw near to God and surrender everything to him. Norris and Truett were often on opposite sides when it came to theology, but his counsel, Truett's, was much the same as Norris's. He preached that the church needed to live by faith and trust the will of God on earth. He begged his congregation to rededicate their lives to Christ, and he closed his sermon by saying, follow Christ. Follow Christ through evil as well as good report. Follow Christ as you climb the steep hill. Follow Christ if it takes you into the dismal swamp. Follow Christ if following means suffering. Yea, if it means death, follow Christ. Now that's a nice history lesson, Pastor, but what in the world does it have to do with us? I don't think any of us should pretend that 2024 will be an ordinary or an easy year. War rages in Ukraine and in the Middle East, and both places are powder kegs waiting to erupt and to draw all of us into a world war. Closer to home, we face the prospect of another election season. Does anybody remember the last one? 
You say, I'm really trying to forget. Me too. I threatened to take a sabbatical this year, but then I read about uh, Truett Norris and figured I'd better stay around for a little while. Now, folks, I'm no prophet, but I expect a year of division and contention, a year of riots and rage. And if trends continue the way they're going, I expect that Bible-believing Christians will be vilified in the press like we have never seen before. I also expect that some will make it easy by acting like villains. It is quite possible that the racial tension that is always smoldering beneath the surface in our country will be stoked by those on both sides of the aisle to leverage that to their advantage. I am further concerned about the impact another year of turmoil will have on a fragile economy that has not recovered from 2020. You say, Pastor, thanks for all the good news. (laughs) I came for a dose of optimism to hear how the church was going to move forward in the new year. And I appreciate that sentiment, I really do. But let me say, the men of Issachar were wise because they understood the times. And it would be myopic and short-sighted for us to act like we're just lying in green pastures beside still waters when we are in truth marching towards a valley of the shadow. Wartime conditions call for wartime Christianity. There is a difference in peacetime living and wartime living. Times of crisis demand from us a level of consecration and surrender to God that times of comfort do not. Though we may feel safe when we're lying in green pastures with a little distance between us and our shepherd, if we are to make it through the valley of the shadow, we must draw nearer to him than we have ever been before. I can't promise you a crisis-free year especially in the year that we expect to come. But I can promise you on the authority of God's word that Christ is over the crisis. And he is with us in the crisis. And he can give us victory in times of crisis. And one day he will return and free us from crisis. Crisis is temporary, but Christ is eternal and he is coming soon. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is preparing the church at Philippi for their own crisis. See, he's under house arrest at Rome. He fully expects that he's going to be free and be reunited with this church that he loves. But he also knows that his martyrdom is a real possibility. So he writes this letter to prepare the church for that possibility. And then to encourage, and to encourage them that even if he does go to heaven, they can joyfully take their stand for Christ. Paul understood that the difficult days that he had faced would lie ahead for the church at Philippi, and he writes this letter to get them ready to stand in times of crisis. Let's pick up our reading tonight in verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake 
having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. In verse 28, Paul isn't trying to trim the truth. He says, I know that you folks are going to face some adversaries. He says, I anticipate that Christ is going to give you the gift of suffering. I expect you to face the same kind of conflict that I'm facing. The word conflict in verse 29 is the word from which we get our English word agony. It pictures a runner who is struggling and fighting with all that he has to finish the race and defeat his opponents and to win the prize. Paul is reminding the church and reminding us that God has not called us to a Sunday walk in the park. Many times his calling is a calling of struggle. We don't like to hear that. We would like to keep fights and struggles and hard years as far away from us as we possibly can. But don't ever forget that God has his purposes for those things. And throughout history, some of his greatest victories were achieved through great conflicts in the lives of his people. Paul writes to the church to steal them for the struggle that is coming. He tells them how to handle it and where to find their strength in the middle of it. And by preparing them, he's actually preparing us because we get to read from these things and learn just like they did. How can we be a steadfast church in a year of struggle? Well, Paul says we must have three priorities. First of all, conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Secondly, cooperation in the gospel. Thirdly, courage for the gospel. Now look back at verse 27. There's an interesting word there, only. It means above all. Let this be your first priority. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now the word conversation means manner of life, or we might say conduct. The word becoming here means worthy of. So let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now isn't this true, folks? The gospel was always Paul's chief concern. That's because the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had saved his life. It changed him completely. When he met Christ, he was set free from joyless, self-righteous living. And for the rest of his life, the gospel that set him free was his first concern. In Philippians 1, Paul saw the gospel as the key to his past. He said in verse 12 that the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul said, I'm actually okay with the painful and difficult things that have happened in my life because God used those things to further the gospel. Paul saw the gospel as the key to his present. Some in Rome were smearing his good name, but Paul basically says, if they're talking about me, they're talking about Jesus, so smear on. Paul saw the gospel as the key to his future. He said in verse 20 that his hope was to magnify Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. Do you see here the gospel was everything to Paul? It was his cause. And can I say, church, Worth Baptist Church, the gospel ought to be our cause. We ought to see it as the key to everything we do here. We are not just saved by the gospel. We are saved to it and we are saved for it. And living the gospel and giving it to others ought to be the first concern of the church. Living in light of the gospel is the focus of verse 27. 
Paul uses an interesting word when he says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. The word is politomai, and it refers to the behavior of a citizen of a city. The city was the polis, and that word was embedded in the Greek term. We still use that word for Indianapolis and Minneapolis and for the metropolitan areas, even the metroplex. We get our word politics from this word. It would not be stretching it too far to translate it. Let your politics be worthy of the gospel. And some of us ought to think about that this year. This term would have had a special meaning for the Philippians. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. Though Rome was 800 miles away, the citizens of the city of Philippi had their names on the roll of Rome. They were representatives of the Roman Empire in Greece. And Caesar told all of them that their conduct in that faraway place was still to be worthy of the, of the conduct of Rome. Not only were these believers citizens of Rome, but they were, of course, citizens of another country, a lot further than 800 miles away. Look at chapter 3, verse 20, if you would. He says, for our conversation, same word, our citizenship, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss what he's saying. Like they were representatives of Rome in Greece, they were in an even greater way representatives of heaven on earth. Folks, every Christian is a citizen of heaven and an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And though I'm thankful for Fort Worth and I'm thankful for the United States of America, our greatest allegiance is to God and to our heavenly country. And we're not only to believe the gospel, we are to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven in a way that's worthy of the gospel. In the 80s, Warren Wearsby, author and pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, wrote a book he entitled, The Integrity Crisis. And he asserted that integrity, not communism, not liberalism, was the greatest threat in that time to the American church. And if he was alive and could see the church today, I could only imagine what he'd write. I quote, For 19 centuries, the church has been telling the world to admit its sins, repent, and trust in Christ. Now the world is telling the church to face up to her sins, repent, and start being the church. Christians love to boast that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But sometimes I wonder if the gospel of Christ is ashamed of us. Another author said, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their completeness, their certainty. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber and joyless, when they're self-righteous and smug, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Paul, or Peter, excuse me, wrote something similar in 1 Peter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest, conversation is the same word. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, 
They may buy your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And the day of visitation refers to a day of difficulty in an unsaved person's life. I just want to tell you, folks, if you live a life that's really worthy of the gospel, your life will be different from the lives of the people around you. Different from the people who live in your neighborhood. Different from the people who work in your office. They will view you as something of a stranger. And it's not that you're trying to live a stranger, different life. You're really just trying to please God, but that makes you different. If you live that way, and I know many of you do, you know how the people in your office or your your school respond to you. You're often the butt of jokes. You're left out of things. They may even say you're bigoted or ignorant. But here's what Peter said, and I believe it's true today. Let something bad happen in those people's lives. Let their spouse leave them or let them get into more trouble than they know what to do with. And yours is going to be the first door that they knock on. Why? When things are going great, people don't want different. But let things go south and they need different. For that reason, church, this is a year for us to practice what we preach. We're all the time telling people to trust in Christ so they can know peace and joy. While the world turns on each other this year and loses their ever-loving minds, how about we show the world a little bit of that peace and joy? We preach to people about unconditional love and forgiveness. And we should. The unconditional love of God has changed our lives. But how about we offer some of that love this year to people who don't think like us or people who don't vote like us? I'm not saying we should abandon our convictions. I'm saying we can stand for our convictions and act like Christians at the same time. While they riot, let us pray for revival. While they demonize their opponents, let's try to win our opponents. And while they act like the sky is falling and the world is ending because their guy didn't win, let's live like God is still on his throne and Jesus is still coming soon. And if we will, according to the Bible, some of them will behold it. And they'll say, that's really different. And I really need that. And they will glorify God. In times of conflict and struggle, conduct worthy of the gospel must be our first priority. Let's think about how we represent Jesus in the gospel as we go into a year of struggle. But Paul says in a year of conflict and struggle, not only do we need conduct that's worthy of the gospel, we need cooperation in the gospel. Look again at verse 27, if you will. He says in the middle of the verse, whether I come and see you or else be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Don't miss what Paul's saying. If I go on to heaven or I get out of here and I come to see you, here's what I expect to hear either from heaven or I expect to hear when I get there, that you all are standing for the gospel, that you're doing it in one mind, in one spirit, and you're still working together to see the gospel advance even in a time of struggle. I love the unity of this verse and the togetherness of it. Can I remind you, church, that the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. That's why we have each other. 
And in times of difficulty and conflict, it is more important than ever that God's people stick together, that we stand together, that we strive together. And I know how difficult it can be out in the world to hear the kind of insults and the kind of language that you hear. Young people, for you to get online and see people constantly running down your religion and your deeply felt faith in Christ. And it really is a wonderful thing as the world rages against God that we can gather here on Sundays and we can gather here on Wednesdays and we can say what you're going through, I'm going through too. And you know, God has given me grace and I've been able to be a witness even in the midst of it. And God will give you grace and you can be a witness in the midst of it too. There really is something that strengthens us when we stand together for the gospel. It's a wonderful thing. Paul says in the first place, of course, stand for the gospel. He says, stand fast. The word stand fast is a military word. In the Roman world, soldiers were armed with these interesting shoes. When they went into battle, they would strap them on. These shoes had long metal spikes, much longer than you would see on a pair of baseball spikes, for instance. Now, many times the Roman army was advancing and they wouldn't wear those shoes. But when they were going to face the advance of the enemy, they would gird themselves with those shoes. They would stand toe-to-toe with their brothers in arms on the front lines. They would dig in their feet and they would say, let come what may, I will not budge an inch. I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to stand. For the glory of Rome, they refused to budge. And for the glory of God in our day, we need to stand together for the gospel. Now he says here, stand fast in one spirit. What spirit is that? Well, the word spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit. You know what unifies the church and what brings us all together? The spirit of God. You see, folks, the church is not a club you join. It's not like Sam's Club or Costco where you buy a membership, you pay your dues, you get your discounts. The church is a family you're born into, and you're born by the Spirit of God. Paul said, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink in one Spirit. Think about this. Families are united by shared blood and DNA. The church is united by a shared Savior and the Holy Spirit that indwells us all. This was the key to the early church's unity. It says in Acts 2.46, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts 4.32 says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Man, I love that. Think of that. Thousands of different people from a diverse background all had different hearts beating together in unison with a singular purpose and vision. Their hearts beat together for Christ. That's what a local church should be. Tozer said, you don't get unity in a church by focusing on unity. You get unity in a church by focusing on Christ. He said, 1,000 pianos tuned by the same tuning fork, will also be in tune with one another. And when each of us are in tune with Christ and filled with the Spirit of God, we will be in tune with one another. You know, the spirit of a church is so important. And it's something church surveys can't quantify. It's something that doesn't show up on the weekly report. 
the spirit of a church is so important. I think it might be the most important thing about a church. I would like to think that we have a similar spirit here, that we're united in heart and purpose. Wouldn't you like to think that? I would like to think that if someone from the local news went out and interviewed people who had come into contact with the members of Worth Baptist Church throughout the week, that they might all say something similar. When I met that member of Worth Baptist Church, they were very kind to me. They tried to serve me. Most importantly, they tried to give me the gospel of Jesus Christ and win me to him. That is the spirit we should have in this world as we stand together for the gospel. And let's have one spirit and get right with God so we can be tuned into Christ and tuned into one another. Then he says, stand fast in one spirit, but stand fast in one mind. Now, how do you get a bunch of Baptists to have one mind? (laughs) Very simply, we have one mind because we read one book. Look at Philippians chapter 3, if you would, and look at verse 16. That's not the right verse. The verse that I'm looking for says, let us bear the same rule, let us have the same mind. What is the same rule? The same rule, the only rule for our faith and practice is the word of God. It's the word of God that keeps us on mission. It's the word of God that keeps us together. For over 70 years now, biblical preaching has been the priority of Worth Baptist Church. And I hope that never changes. How about you? I'm looking forward to the over 100 messages that I'll bring from the pulpit this year. In a few weeks, we'll jump back into our study of the life of David. We'll learn about recovering a heart for God. You know, David had a terrible failure in the second half of his life, didn't he? And we're going to be very honest about it as we deal with it. But that book of the Bible records that there is more grace in Christ than there was sin in David or sin in you and me. There is grace greater than our sin. And if you know anybody in your life that needs a comeback or second chance, and the world is full of those people, by the way, you get them here on Sunday mornings as we talk about the second chance that God gave David and the restoration and recovery that he had. On Sunday nights, we'll get back into the wonderful book of 1 Thessalonians. Then on Wednesday, we are taking a guided tour of the Bible. You may not know this if you're a new member, but we have three unique worship services every week here at Worth Baptist Church. That Sunday morning service is a great rally, and winning the lost is always going to be the primary focus. But on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, we're going to dive a little bit deeper in the Word of God. And yes, we will always give the gospel, but the purpose of those services is to build up and edify believers, and that's where growth is really going to happen. On Wednesday nights, we're taking a guided tour of the Bible. We're stopping each week at a different book, a survey of the entire Bible. And it has really been a blessing to the people who have been a part of it. And I hope you'll show up if you're free on Wednesday nights. Every week of my life, whether I'm traveling or I'm here at home, I meet somebody, this is not an exaggeration, every week I meet somebody who is listening to our sermon podcast or watching our services online. I just want to say that I'm thankful for the men and women of our live stream and audio visual ministry who do such a good work, a good job getting the word out. Many churches our size have full time. Yeah, let's give those folks a hand. Wonderful. Many churches our size have full time staff that takes care of those things. Everyone who works in those ministry are volunteers and they give tremendous amounts of their time and sit in perches and sound booths when they could be in the auditorium. I'm so thankful for that. And I just want to say to you as a church, I'm thankful for your hunger for God's word. 
I know that there are churches in town where you could get a better show on Sunday. But each week you show up eager to hear God's word. In 2024, let's continue to stand for the gospel in one spirit and one mind. The spirit is the spirit of the Lord and one mind comes from the word of the Lord. He says, I want you to stand together for the gospel. Then he says in verse 27, it's not enough to stand. You need to strive together for the gospel. Now, when we think about that word striving, we think about fighting. He's not saying that we're supposed to fight one another for the sake of the gospel. So you Baptists put down your boxing gloves, okay? This is an athletic term. It referred to people who were in a boat race who would row in unison, working together to move the boat through the water. You know, some people think that the boat of the church can't move forward when the water gets choppy. Some people think that the gospel can't advance as well when the culture is against us or when times of crisis come. You know, folks, that just isn't true. Look at Paul as proof positive. All of Paul's ministry, he wanted to come to Rome and lead a big, wide, citywide evangelistic revival and a campaign. When Paul finally came to Rome, he came not as the keynote speaker for an evangelistic crusade. He came in chains. But you know what he decided? This may not be the thing that I had envisioned. I'm not spending this year the way that I thought I would spend it. But if they're going to lock a soldier to me, I'm going to take the opportunity to get that soldier the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every single one of the soldiers they sent to Paul's house to guard him, he tried to win those soldiers to Christ. And at the end of the book of Philippians, he's going to tell them, those that are of Caesar's household salute you. Paul had won so many people to Christ that even some of the officials in Caesar's own household had been saved. You lock Paul in jail and chain him to a jailer and he'll just win the jailer to Christ. But no matter what, he won't stop rowing. Look at the early church. They had their shares of struggle. Did they live in easy times, folks? I don't think so. The Jews hated them. Now, we get harassed often, but I'm not sure it really rises to the level of culture-wide hate, okay? The Jews really hated the Christians. The Gentiles thought they were crazy. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on them and did everything he could to kill them. Everywhere these Christians went, they faced harassment and persecution. Did they say the winds of opposition are blowing mighty strong? We might as well just give up. No, they locked arms and they rode that much harder and they saw the gospel advance. Here's my question. Does anybody think the gospel can still advance in 2024? I do. Does anybody want to see the gospel advance in 2024? I do. Nothing that happens on the outside of the boat can stop the gospel because God is greater than anything on the outside of the boat. The only thing that can stop the gospel is when those inside the boat stop rowing. They stop striving. Folks, I'm really thankful for the way that our church strived for the gospel in 2023. Through our services and outreach ministries, we had close to 100 people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we ought to praise the Lord for that. Those are only the folks that make it on the reports. Many more came to Christ in nursing homes and through good news clubs and through other outreach ministries. By God's grace last year, and this is to his glory, the church increased in Sunday school attendance, worship attendance, baptisms, giving, 
missions giving, and in the number of people added to our church. 123 people were added to our membership in 2023. It really was a great year. We launched our new outreach program, DFW Evangelism, and a tremendous group of people participated in the first time we did it. They knocked on thousands of doors. Souls were saved and families were in church this morning who were invited through DFW Evangelism. We all got to participate in this great tract outreach. And last year, our church gave out thousands of tracts. And I'm convinced probably more tracts than we've ever given out in the history of our church. And I praise God for that. Last year, we began a refugee mentoring program. We resumed international outreach at the Monarch Pass Apartments. We have a host of people from nations all over the world who are at this sprawling apartment complex. And on Monday nights, several volunteers are striving together to reach refugees and immigrants with the gospel. It's a wonderful thing. Good news clubs, Embrace Grace, and the Bridge to Recovery all moved forward last year by God's grace. I'd like just a moment, he doesn't know I'm going to do this, I'd like for John Foster to stand. John, would you stand? I think everyone knows you. Most of you know that many years ago, John and Holly came to our church through our addictions program. The Lord did a tremendous work in their lives, and he delivered them from their addictions. He's transformed their lives. John graduated from the Norris Bible Baptist Seminary and has been working on a counseling certificate over at Southwestern. And at the end of January, John will become the full-time director of our Bridge to Recovery. Praise the Lord for that. Someone who was reached by the gospel and by an addictions program is now going to reach others and lead that ministry. Now, Brother Sides is still sticking around. Don't get worried about that. He's going to transition to several new roles in our church ministry, and I think he's really going to help some things go forward in a great way. In Bethlehem M was a great success this year. It was a joy to see 100 volunteers about uh, striving together to get the gospel to people. Hundreds visited our campus for the first time. That's not an exaggeration. Fifteen people made professions of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that. Last year at this time, I shared that God was calling us to plant a church. I remain convinced of that. Church planting is an essential part of the Great Commission. We cannot teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded. We cannot baptize them outside of the context of a local church. Besides that, studies have shown that new churches are far more effective at reaching unsaved, unchurched people than even established churches are. Over the past year, we've identified a rapidly growing community not far from our church that is severely underchurched. Only one Baptist church in a community of over 30,000 people. Think about that right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. For the past six months, we've been pounding the pavement looking for a space to meet. God has not opened the door yet. And I want you to pray that he will give us a definitive answer about a location for that church plant in the next 30 days. I believe this, if God has called us to do it, he will open the door. And as soon as he's opened the door, we're gonna snap into action and we're gonna try to reach that community for Christ. We're gonna ask some of you to go over there permanently and make that your church home and plant your life in that community and reach people there for 20 or 30 years. 
We'll ask many of you to serve there on a monthly basis, taking a role in the nursery, singing a special song, playing the piano. But we are going to ask all of you to grab an oar, whether it's at the church plant or here at Worth Baptist Church, so we can reach that community for Jesus Christ. This year, we're going to reinvest in our bus ministry in a big way. You know, we lost many of our bus kids during COVID. We lost them and we couldn't find them again. It was through no lack of effort on the part of Brother Barchu or the wonderful people who work in that ministry. They moved and we just couldn't find them. And to be honest, the bus ministry has been down ever since. For most of my time here at Worth, both as the youth pastor and as the pastor, we've had between 60 to 100 children riding the buses. Right now we have substantially less than that. It's not like the opportunity to reach children in the Metroplex has diminished. Those children are still willing to come to church, and those moms and dads are still willing to put them on the bus. So this year, we're going to inject some new passion into that ministry. We're going to make improvements to our bus fleet. We're going to recruit some new volunteers that's very needed. We're going to offer training and resources to men and women who are currently there. And by the end of the year, and I want you to pray with me, I'm asking God to triple the size of our bus ministry. And it's not about numbers, it's about souls, it's about boys and girls, it's about moms and dads that we can reach for Christ. Uh, You uh, young mothers will be glad to hear this. This year we're going to make some improvements in our nursery facility. Those of you who work in children's ministry, we're planning to construct an outdoor play space for our children at some point this year. We're planning to invest over six figures in our outdoor lighting in the parking lot to make things safer and more appealing, especially during the night services. Let's talk about the long term for a minute. In the long term, there is a great need for us to expand our Sunday school space. We're out of Sunday school classes, and many of them have reached their capacity. There's a need to make more room in this auditorium. On a normal Sunday like we had this morning, it wasn't a big Sunday, the auditorium was three-fourths filled. And it's like that every normal Sunday. When we have a big Sunday, it is filled to overflowing. All the studies tell us That when people walk into an auditorium and they see it more than two-thirds filled, they think there's no place for me in this church. I need to go someone else. Many years ago, and I think this was a stroke of genius, this auditorium was constructed uh, to support a balcony. And you'll see this overhang that's right above me where classrooms are in the upstairs. That's really supposed to be a balcony for this auditorium. What we want to do in the years to come is remove those classrooms. We want to put two grand staircases right here in the auditorium so people can go up and down. And if God speaks to their heart in the invitation, they can come down from the balcony and come and pray or give their life to Christ. When we eliminate those classrooms in the classrooms in the middle foyer, that's going to put even more of a crunch on our Sunday school space. And we're already in a crunch. So before we can build a balcony... We need to construct an educational building where we can have a growing Sunday school. For many years, we've wanted to build a multi-story building. It'll include office space, a 250-seat chapel for our Hispanic department, and a state-of-the-art children's wing. It'll have a big lobby where families can fellowship before and after church. We're going to have an indoor playground where children can play rain or shine, the middle of summer or winter. During the week, we want to use that building to offer low-cost daycare to the people who are here in our community. And we'll be able to reach boys and girls for Jesus, and we'll be able to reach their mommies and daddies too through that daycare. Now, my friend Dr. Chapel says often 
that buildings don't change lives. And that's true. But what happens in buildings does change lives. And it's about changing lives with the gospel. To do this and to do what God has laid upon our hearts to do, to plant a church, to construct a balcony, to build a building, to reach more for Christ. It's going to require us to strive together for the gospel and make sacrifices like we have never done before. But when it comes to the souls of men and the advance of the gospel, don't you believe those sacrifices are worth making? And isn't that why we're here? And isn't that why God has saved us so we can make those sacrifices? Many years ago, in 1999, Dr. Weaver challenged the members of our church to write a personal mission statement. Now, that was before I came around here, but I heard all about it. He asked them to define the purpose of their lives in clear, simple terms and to write those things down. Now, I'm sure some people wrote a statement and didn't think too much about it, but one of our members did. Dean Wimberly did. Many of you know Brother Dean. He was one of our deacons for many years and perhaps the most consistent soul winner that I have ever known. I have that mission statement that he wrote out. Allison brought it to me. Here's what Dean wrote. Believing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I promise to give my life to telling others how to be saved, to caring about others and having compassion. Then, teaching my children how to tell others about Christ and for them to see him in me. The great thing for them is to live and serve the Lord. Signed, Dean Wimberly. You know, Dean had a vision for his life and he lived it. Both of his children are serving the Lord and winning other people to Christ. Many of you know this, but a few months ago, Dean was called home to heaven on a Saturday night. Do you know how he spent his Saturday morning knocking on doors with DFW evangelism? And guess what? That Saturday, he led a man to Christ. A man will be in heaven forever because another man strived for the gospel. Let me ask you, friend, what is your vision for your life? If you were to write a personal mission statement, what would it say? Dean's life was about the gospel. Paul's life was about the gospel. And he wanted the church at Philippi to live for the gospel too, to strive together. Let me say to you tonight, we can go a lot further when we go together. We can do a lot more for the gospel when each of us picks up an oar and we row and we do something for the Lord. Years ago, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem about the law of the jungle. He said, now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. As the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth uh, forward and back. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Folks, in days of difficulty and struggle, the law of the jungle is in effect. And the strength of the church is the Christian, and the strength of the Christian is the church. Thank God none of us have to stand for the gospel alone. And none of us can reach the gospel alone. We cooperate for the gospel. And if there's anything we ought to do as we come into a year of crisis and turmoil, It's to say more than ever before, we're going to lock arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're going to reach the world if we can. So what do you do? What do you do in times of turmoil? 
Well, first of all, prioritize conduct that's worthy of the gospel. Secondly, prioritize cooperation in the gospel. And lastly, prioritize courage for the gospel. Paul says in verse 28, don't be terrified at all by your adversaries. Let me just say, folks, it's going to take courage for us to stand for Christ this year. He says, when you face adversaries, don't be afraid. The word is interesting here when he says, be nothing terrified. The word is interesting. The only time it's used in the New Testament, the word refers to horses that were spooked. Something scared them and they were spooked and they ran off. Paul is saying, don't get spooked just because someone opposes you. Don't run off and desert your post. Don't be afraid. Then he says, opposition reveals who you really are as a child of God. And ladies and gentlemen, if we're not facing opposition in a wicked world, it may be that we're not really living for the Lord the way that we ought to. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If we're getting no blowback and nobody is ever making fun of us or opposing us, we need to ask ourselves whether we're really standing for the gospel or not. Then he says, it is given unto you not only to believe on the gospel, but also to suffer for his name. It's given to you. And I want you to dial in here for a moment. Times of struggle are actually a gift from God. Let me ask you something. Isn't the gift of salvation the most wonderful gift that God's ever given you? What a wonderful gift. Paul says here, God has given us a gift that if anything could rival it, this would rival it. You know what that gift is? It's to suffer for Jesus. American Christians don't like to hear that. And it's not something we've heard often. We don't like times of struggle. We don't like suffering. But it really is a gift from God. I want you to think with me. It's in times of struggle that we start depending on God, isn't it? In times of struggle, we actually start praying and leaning on the promises of God. Times of struggle purge the dross and sin out of our lives. And we shine brighter for Christ. Struggle has never stopped the gospel. It has never stopped the people of God. In fact, times of ease have come much closer to stopping the gospel or the people of God than times of struggle ever have. Here's the point. As we face an an uncertain future, take courage. Be courageous. Surrender your life to Christ. Seek to make your conduct worthy of the gospel. Lock arms and cooperate for the gospel. Then go out into the world with courage, standing for Christ. Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple, and he did some great things as far as the world is concerned. Here's what he said about vision. If you're working on something exciting that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed. The vision pulls you. And I know this, if you have been saved by the gospel, you care about it. And you want to have conduct worthy of the gospel. You want to do something that moves it forward. Even in what might be a year of struggle, why don't you decide tonight, I'm not going to fall apart. And I'm not going to sit back. Pastor, I'm going to join with you and with the other members of our church and we're going to strive together for the faith of the gospel. 
Is that a decision you'd like to make tonight? I hope you'll make it. Let's stand together. Father, I'm so thankful for what you've done in our church over 70 years of our history. History of people with a deep faith in God. History of people who were surrendered to you and made sacrifices for your cause. History of a people in good times and bad who just stayed faithful and kept preaching the gospel and kept winning people to Jesus. Lord, I know that all of us come into this new year with some apprehension. This is not a time for apprehension or anxiety. This is a time for boldness. This is a time for courage. And oh God, we pray that you'd give it to us and help us to live like it. Lord, I pray that this will be the greatest year in the history of our church. And may all of us make a decision tonight that we're going to do something to move the gospel forward in 2024. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.